Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me today as ever a Spike's deputy editor and host of the Last Orders podcast, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. This week on the show... The crisis in Venezuela, the limerick that launched a police investigation, and the calls to boycott Eurovision in Israel. Tens of thousands of Venezuelans have taken to the streets of the capital, Caracas, in an attempt to topple President Maduro from power. The socialist Venezuelan dictatorship is on the verge of total collapse. A regime that, frankly, could be toppled very quickly by the military if the military decides to do that. President Trump has announced his support for opposition leader Juan Guaido. Donald Trump hunts. Venezuela's political crisis has reached boiling point. Mass protests have broken out, calling for the overthrow of President Nicolas Maduro, while National Assembly leader Juan Guaido has declared himself interim president. The political crisis follows years of severe economic hardship and increasingly authoritarian rule. Tom, can you tell us a bit more about what's going on in Venezuela? I think what we're seeing is that the kind of crisis in Venezuela, both political and economic, is kind of reaching boiling point again. And I think it is worth taking a step back and just reminding ourselves how bad things have gotten Mm. in Venezuela. I mean, this was once the richest country in Latin America, but since 2013 in particular, it's taken this tremendous kind of nosedive into poverty as well as authoritarianism you know its its economy has shrunk by half hyperinflation is currently at 1.3 million percent um food and medicine basic goods are just things which are completely being scrapped over there was one um survey last year which found that something like 79 percent of medical facilities don't have running water this is really really serious mm. stuff um and whilst there have been protests before there was of course a huge wave of protest in 2017 in which much of the opposition was clamped down upon i think what we're seeing now is it entering a bit of a new phase previously the opposition to maduro and his increasingly authoritarian term the way in which he has not only presided over a failing economy but has clamped down on all opposition largely came from the middle classes from the more kind of liberal pro-market sets of the society whereas now we're seeing the protests spread even into the kind of previously pro-regime working class sections of Caracas and elsewhere. But at the same time, there is a danger with how things are developing because increasingly the conflict is being internationalised. You're seeing Guaido appeal very directly to international leaders and open talk of some kind of intervention. So it's quite clear that the Venezuelan people have had enough. And I think there is a very strong argument to make about Guaido and the National Assembly being potentially the only institution in Venezuela that has some democratic legitimacy at this Mm. point. We can get into the reasons why. Um, But at the same time, there is this tremendous danger of this conflict being internationalised, it being taken out of Venezuelans' people's hands, um, and also playing into the narrative of Maduro at at the moment, which is to say this is, in his words, a gringo coup orchestrated from outside. The point is the resistance has to come from within Venezuela, from Mm. Venezuelans themselves. It's a classic example of things that we've seen all across the world, where when something goes wrong in a country like this, the West deems it its responsibility to step in and pick out who is the best person to rule. In relation to what this is doing to Venezuelans, of about 31 million, 3 million have 
fled since mm. 2013. So this yeah. is a country that's hemorrhaging its own populace. This is a defunct socialist regime, which, you know, it has to be said, many on the so-called left here in the UK have failed to come out properly and openly criticise. You mm. know, they still hang on to the, the romantic idea that Chavez's project was something to be celebrated. On the other hand, you've got a really kind of crass um, conservative or right wing Westerners saying, see, this is what this is the hellhole that socialism leads to. So it's a war that's been playing out between two factions outside of Venezuela. It's got nothing to do with Venezuela necessarily and certainly hasn't got the interests of Venezuelans at its heart. I think that's right. I mean, yeah, I think for so many people in the West, it's just a sort of talking point. It's um, yeah. either 20 years ago, you'd have your Corbyns and co saying Venezuela shows why socialism is brilliant. Mm. Look at how well you can redistribute income, blah, blah, blah. Today you have the, you know, your right wingers saying we can't go down this path in the US or in Britain when, you know, the, the economic circumstances in particular are completely unique. It, it's an economy that's entirely dependent on its oil. It has the largest proven oil reserves in the world. 98% of its export earnings mm. are still coming from oil. 50% of its GDP depends on oil. The entire economy has been sucked into this, this one area of industry. And, you know, obviously the, the government has a lot to blame for that. The entire, you know, quote unquote socialist program was based on this pretty fragile setup. And then when that collapsed, when the oil price plunged, then the entire system collapsed and we're in, you know, and now we're in big trouble. The problem is that I, I don't think it actually gives us any lessons necessarily that we might want to take for anywhere in the in the developed world. Mm. No, I think that's that's right. And I think the other thing that is important to point out as well is that this is an argument that particularly the left are trying to make, or at least the ones who are willing to, you know, not just stare at their shoelaces when Venezuela comes up at the moment, is to try and present Chavez good, Maduro bad. Mm. Um, and I think one thing that hasn't really been pointed out is that while, yes, Maduro has become increasingly authoritarian, you know, when the opposition alliance took control of the National Assembly in 2015, he effectively forced out some Supreme Court judges, got them to remake the rules so that there could be this new national constituent assembly in which very contested elections were held yeah. and it was stuffed with his own um, functionaries effectively um, not, and when he retook the presidency last year it was in the context of a game stuffed ballot boxes allegedly various op opposition leaders being locked up and fierce crackdown on protests previously but at the same time he did inherit a system which was already incredibly dysfunctional yeah. you know i mean there was this as you say this incre incredible over-reliance on oil during the chavez he had no attempt to not only kind of try and diversify the economy at all but also actually output within the oil industry actually going down as a yeah. result of lack of investment and all the rest of it and also him starting to make those kinds of authoritarian moves um that maduro is now kind of taking to the nth degree you know there was a human rights watch report back in 2008 which was pointing out that there was moves to clamp down the opposition to undermine the independence of the judiciary so the idea that everything was great under chavez um, and that Maduro is some sort of aberration, I think is also a kind of narrative that the left are trying to push in order to wash their hands of the, fact, of the points that you've been making, which is they treated Venezuela as this kind of heart in a heartless world, you know, at the peak of kind of neoliberal technocratic rule everywhere yeah. else. There was this plucky little state which was showing how we could do it differently. But at the same time, they they were kind of blinded to its own dysfunctions um, and its increasing illiberalness mm. um, because they were so desperate to maintain that narrative. Yeah, I mean, um, as you say, I mean, the end of judicial independence came under Chavez, mm. not necessarily under Maduro. You know, he started packing the Supreme Court with his 
cronies. They had to pledge that they were going to carry out the government's agenda. Press freedoms completely trampled yeah. over. Basically, any broadcast which offended government officials was prohibited. Private media sanctioned and criminalised. Authoritarianism in Venezuela has been a long time coming. And I think that, you know, as you effectively have America, not only talk, not only talking about ramping up sanctions, but I mean, it was revealed last year that Trump was meeting with um, defectors from the Venezuelan military to talk about engineering mm. some sort of coup. This is very serious stuff. People need to remember the history of American imperialism in that part of the world as well. You know, 1961, Bay of Pigs, CIA attempt to overthrow Fidel Castro in Cuba, the backing of the 1973 coup in Chile, which obviously led to the long military dictatorship of Pinochet. And if what we're really interested in is there being some real democratic uprising in that part of the world, it cannot be seen to be... an part of this kind of US-backed coup, but also it cannot take the initiative out from mm. Venezuelans themselves in order to push this forward. And again, it lends so much credence to Maduro's kind of put down that this is again some sort of foreign-backed coup by the way in which America and the rest of the world are going about it. Just one tiny detail, Elliot Abrams, who was a kind of former Reagan mm. official who was implicated in the Iran-Contra scandal, was actually convicted for lying to Congress twice about it and pardoned by George H.W. Bush, has now been named this kind of special envoy to yeah. Venezuela. If anything's going to com complicate this process further, it's by suggesting to some Venezuelans who might otherwise be more liable to kind of, you know, revolt against this regime, that this is just a kind of replay of all of those old Cold War battles. Absolutely. And, and Abrams in particular is, you know, is bad news. I mean, the fact is he has been implicated in a number of the foreign policy misadventures of the US in, in Latin America. I mean, one of his first roles was to cover up a government-led massacre of mm. 75,000 people in El Salvador, basically to try and keep the US's allies in power. I don't think we've learned any lessons from, you know, the US's disastrous interventions in, in, um, in Latin America in the past if we're basically going to be sending in the same people to probably try the same things over again. Yeah, it's incredible, actually, when you look at it, how sort of old school this is in many mm. ways, because mm. you've got America not intervening out of the kindness of in its heart for Venezuelans, not out of any sort of outreach ideals, but because on the other side, you've got what's been called the Autocrats Alliance, China, Russia, Iran, mm. Turkey, backing Maduro. So, you know, you could even rewind back 56 years and see that this is sort of playing out the same kind of Cold War tensions. And that's dangerous, let's not forget. So in the same way that it's not US sanctions on all that are the main reason why Venezuela is going to hell in a handbasket, it's also not the case that it will be the saviour of Venezuela if America opposes Maduro. So it just, you have to reiterate that it doesn't matter what you think of Maduro. And I certainly don't think anyone around this table would cheer him on quite pleased if he gets overthrown very quickly but not by western intervention because we know where that leads i'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been donating to spiked i know many of you who listen to this podcast have donated to us in the past or make monthly donations and it's thanks to your contributions and generosity that we can keep going and growing Spike to some very exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcasts, and we need the help of listeners and readers like you to make them happen. So, if you haven't before, please do consider making a donation, or even better, setting up a monthly donation. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. Now, back to the show. A man has been questioned by police for liking and retweeting a limerick that made fun of transgender women. 
According to Harry Miller, a police officer rang him saying he wanted to check his thinking on trans issues. The incident was then logged as a non-crime hate incident. Ella, would you like to tell us a bit more about this case? Yeah, so this normal guy is just minding his own business and gets a call from uh, someone who says they're a police officer. The guy lives in Lincolnshire, the police officer's from Humberside, um, and asks him whether or not he is engaged in something that's anti-trans. And Mm. that then transpires that, uh, yes, he's liked and promoted this short poem, uh, and he... The, the guy, Harry Miller, protests and says, but I didn't even write it. And the oh, police officer says, ah, but you liked and promoted it. So that's the, that's the problem. Um, and this is, re- I mean, we can laugh, but it's actually really terrifying and very serious mm. because uh, A, it's an anonymous person who is, who's tipped off the police officer to then call up Harry Miller to essentially freak him out, basically, mm. because the police officer is quite clear. He says... This is not a crime, it's not a criminal offence, you're not going to go to jail, but it's going to be registered as a hate incident. Um, so Harry Miller then does become a statistic on a list of hate mm. incidents, which is significant. It's also significant to have a police officer call your house. I think yeah. we sort of don't underestimate that. That would certainly frighten me and frighten most normal people. And all of this for stating an opinion on transgenderism. The limerick is not particularly offensive. It's a bit stupid. It's obviously an attempt to be funny. Uh, but in no world could you ever argue that it would directly harm anyone. The police officer even had to acknowledge that there was no victim Mm. to this crime, Mm. and that's why it couldn't be a hate crime, it had to be a hate incident. Mm. We've seen things like this happen time and again. I mean, this is almost becoming the norm, so don't forget that only recently Twitter has changed its rules to mean that you... Uh, will get into serious trouble, banned and even reported to the police if you dead name someone, which means using someone's original name and not their trans name. It's widely becoming seen as hate speech to talk about any kind of criticism Mm. of transgenderism. Mm. I mean, this is we are going to have police officers calling up people time and again because the more that you push, the more that you try to censor people talking about trans issues, the more people are going to wear those slightly silly man you know noun human adult male t-shirt yeah. and start writing stupid lyrics and start pushing back yeah. because you would and that, that's what's so scary about it on the one hand is the kind of encroaching hate speech angle to this which it does feel like you, there's a new form of hate speech kind of forming before our eyes you know no yeah. law has been passed but at the same time dead naming um, any kind of anti-trans discussion is increasingly being kind of pseudo criminalized by yeah. you know it might you might not be locked up yet but you'll get a kind of stern word from some sort of community cohesion officer which is going to put the wind up a lot of people because they get that kind of phone call and the other thing that's so terrifying about this is the phrase non-crime hate incident yeah. which is what um, was prompted this man to get this phone call and what we've been seeing slipping into discussion about hate crime statistics you know mm. we could talk about how complex the idea of hate crime is but this whole idea of non-crime hate incidents which are recorded without needing to be corroborated um, which actually involve no criminal offense actually taking place um, has on the one hand completely skewed our discussion of you know hate crime full yeah. socks these things are so often conflated but it's also a, a whole brave new world in relation to policing because no crime has been committed and yet you're getting a visit from the police i mean it's this we've seen other instances of this which are kind of would be absurd if they weren't so kind of scary you know you had of course a couple of years ago um uh, academic in 2017 report amber rudd then home secretary for committing a non-crime hate incident for a speech she gave on immigration 
Um, a speech he later admitted he hadn't actually read or mm. listened to in full. Um, and there's kind of no dystopian literary illusion you could throw at it that quite does it justice. You know, you could call it like pre-crime, like Philip K. Dick's concept. But at least with pre-crime, the idea was that the people were eventually going to commit a crime. Yeah. You know, <laughs> In this case, these things are not criminal matters, yet it does seem like it's laying the foundation for it. And yet these things are seen as matters of the police on an almost moral basis. You know, the the, yeah. the officer in question who spoke to this gentleman said, we need to check your thinking at one point on this call. And that's, that's incredibly concerning. Yeah, I mean, it, it is extraordinary that you have an issue like the trans issue, which where there is a huge amount of debate. There's a debate in academia. There's debate in, you know, amongst neuroscientists. There's a debate. Mm. There are debates in parliament around this issue. And yet the police have taken a view on which is the correct view to have in order to not, you know, have a visit from the police officer. I mean, it's completely extraordinary. One, like, minor detail in this case that I found interesting was that the police officer said he'd been on a training course yeah. and therefore he knew the correct thinking on trans issues. And he had a very strange understanding a, a of what transgenderism yeah. is, it seemed to be. He said along the lines of something that it's, it's when a fetus develops the wrong kind of brain, basically a male brain and a female vo- body or, or vice versa. Completely bizarre that that's the official view of the police when I don't even know trans campaigners who would actually make that argument. I think I know quite a lot of trans people who would potentially be quite insulted by that because yeah. it's the idea of completely taking away your mm. control. But the interesting thing in relation to trans activists, as separate from the wider trans community, many of whom mm. think this is just as nuts as us and just want this sort of ongoing war around gender to end and let them to just get on and live their lives. But the trans activists on the one hand, talk about how, uh, you know, a patriarchal system of oppression makes their lives hell mm. and how everything is stacked against them, the system is stacked against them, they are oppressed. And yet they seem to be very comfortable with enabling the systems of society, like the police, like the state, to clamp down in their favour. So mm. it's a, this quite bizarre contradiction. Where on the one hand, they're claiming that they are the most oppressed people you know, around today. And yet they seem to have the most amount of power, certainly in in kind of rallying the police to clamp down on people's freedoms. Well, this is is a really important point because I think you're right, this seems to almost be the entire strategy at this point, which is to demand, on the one hand, the recognition of the government and society, the Gender Recognition Act, which Mm. we've talked about a lot, and also to effectively call, as you say, on the police in order to enforce this new ideology. And I think we've said it on this podcast before, but it's worth pointing out again. This is what really distinguishes the kind of trans activist movement from previous um, liberation struggles, LGBT struggles, etc. Is that rather than a demand that the state get out of your personal life, get out of your sex life, get out of how you define yourself, etc. Just demanding that you have the same rights as anyone else. This is demanding police protection, clamp down on dissent from your worldview, um, and the recognition and almost the celebration of the state rather than just keep them out. So mm. when people try and draw a straight line between the kind of previous LGBT activism and this, I think they do have to be pulled up. This is very different. And as Ella was saying, incredibly authoritarian as well. And just returning to, you know, this this question of um, non-crime hate incidents, according to the police figures, and these are very dubious figures um, for various reasons, partly because... Um, you know, they have to record everything that you report to them and cannot challenge it. But the la- the latest figures available show that there were 94,000 non-crime hate incidents in the UK um, 2017 to 2018. That was a rise of 17% on the previous year. And the way that these figures are used is to say, you know, we live in a hateful bigoted society. The, the narrative is is that we, we are we're going around beating up trans people, beating up black people Mm. but then if you look into the into you know some of the incidents that have been recorded i mean 
this limerick will appear on next year's figures, which will be exciting. But last year, some of the figures included a dog poo being discovered, a neighbour deciding that this dog poo was a racist incident. Someone um, several years ago announced in his local library that he was going to campaign for Brexit. So someone told the police and Mm. that was recorded as a police incident. An old age pensioner beeped her horn Mm. at someone and then it transpired (laughs) that the person in in the car in front was black. Someone Mm. told the police and this was recorded as an incident. And all of these things pile up and create a picture of this horrific, evil, hateful society that we supposedly live in. But if you contrast these non-crime hate incidents with hate crime, which is practically never done in the media because the two are just simply elided, you see that hate crime has fallen over the past 10 years by 40%. You can see that even after Brexit, which is supposedly the high point of hate crime, crimes were falling, prosecutions were falling, convictions were falling. We are becoming a much more tolerant society over the long term And, you know, these statistics around hate just paint a completely false picture. I think it's a a very bad faith kind of argument on both sides, because on the one hand, the other kind of anxiety in society is that people are being divisive, you know, everyone needs to talk about us needing to come together. And yet the ramping up of tensions around the issue of trans is making out that we live in a hateful society, Mm. completely neglecting to recognise the fact that for years, working men's club have had drag performers. You know, we we people cross dress all the time. We people have been trans for a long time. It's been you know, it's not a new phenomenon. We are incredibly tolerant in relation to all forms of sexuality and gender expression. And in general, you might find some bad behaviour as is always going to be the case. But in general, quite proud to say that Britain is a country that is tolerant towards people's personal decisions in relation to how they express themselves, who they love, who they go to bed with. The kind of end point of all of this is you want to say no one cares. You know, we yeah. really it shouldn't be a political issue what way you do your hair and what you call yourself, whether it's he, she or it. I mean, really don't care. The problem is we are being forced to care. And as much as I'd like to say, go on and do whatever you like, trans people. Uh, you know, I've got no issue with it. Actually, I do have an issue with it if you're enforcing people and calling the cops on people if they disagree with you. At that point, you do have to stand up and say, this isn't about pushing for freedom anymore. It's actually the opposite. It's pushing to clamp down on other people's freedoms who don't agree with you. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far. And if you are, why not help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider? It won't take long, but it will make a huge difference for us. So we'd be massively grateful if you could take a tiny bit of your time to give us a rating and a review. Right, now back to the show. 50 artists, including Vivian Westwood, Peter Gabriel, Maxime Peake and Mike Lee, have signed an open letter to the BBC calling on the corporation to relocate the Eurovision Song Contest from Israel. Many of the artists have previously called for a cultural boycott of Israel and have supported the controversial BDS campaign. Tom, what do you make of this? Well, it's part and parcel of the whole kind of 
BDS campaign, I think. You know, many of the people, as you say, involved in this um, letter have previously backed BDS, have previously hauled people like Nick Cave, like Lana Del Rey, like Radiohead over the coals for trying to perform in Israel. And it does just contribute, I think, to the sense amongst many Israeli people, but many people in general, that Israel has been kind of singled out for collective punishment, you know, and also that culture, unfortunately, a means generally through which you would have a kind of non-political exchange and Mm. which you would have a kind of meeting of people from various different countries, which Eurovision, given its bizarre expansionism, the fact that it now (laughs) reaches from everywhere, from Britain to Tel Aviv. um, And Australia. And Australia (laughs) including, you know, is one form of it, a tacky form of it, nevertheless, (laughs) that all of these things become politicised. And it is interesting because I remember having a conversation after Netta, who was the person who won Eurovision last year in Lisbon and now obviously Israel were hosting it as a consequence um, conversations you have with people where people would say things particularly about her and about Israel that they wouldn't say in any other context yeah. you know in any other country I remember a pub conversations talking to someone who's quite a big fan of Eurovision and they were like I'm not sure how I feel about it because you know she's Israeli and it's that sort of nastiness which creeps into the discussion because of the way in which BDS operates is that it does work on this model of kind of collective punishment of punishing a people on the basis of the actions of its government which we wouldn't sanction in many other contexts um, and this kind of nasty singling out. It was even the kind of, you know, around the time of the Lisbon Eurovision, this kind of ridiculous messages being put around by BDS people pointing out that Netta was a member of the IDF. And if, actually, if you looked into it, you know, posting pictures of her in her IDF uniform, she completed her military service in the Israeli Navy band. So, you know, <laughs> there's just, a, there's a lot of nastiness to this, I think, and a lot of double standards. And I think for a lot of people, it's you just wish that there were some areas of life, Eurovision hopefully being one of them, in which politics didn't necessarily have to creep into it. Yeah, I mean, the BDS campaign obviously say that, you know, when they boycott academics or artists from Israel coming to the UK, for instance, they say, well, you know, they are conspiring in basically the Israeli state's propaganda to make it appear to be a quote unquote normal state. But, you know, it's bizarre because if you if you drew the same conclusion with, say, Britain, say you objected to Britain's involvement in, in the war in Yemen, as we all should, you would basically be saying that anyone with a poxy arts council exactly. grant or you know anyone who teaches at, at some university all is, of which receive state money all of which yeah. receive state money are, are basically you know engaged in the legitimization of of dodgy activity by the government you know this is where obviously it is not anti-semitic to criticize israel but when you go into this level there there is an element of i think anti-Semitism or certainly, you know, an element of, of xenophobia and racism. Mm. I mean, the the EU has land fortifications and naval borders. Mm. It's, we've seen the way that it treats people external to its fortress Europe. You know, are, are we going to then start condemning everyone who gets an EU arts grant? Uh, what about where were the kind of boycott, cultural boycott movements around the time when Britain was, you know, occupying and murdering people in Ireland. What about the condemnation of Turkey's treatment of the Kurds? I mean, take your pick. Bad stuff happens around the world all the time. And, you know, if you have the time and energy, boycott all of it. But I think the the point is that there's this honing in on Israel, which makes you think there's something more going on here other than uh, a kind of something that I would defend, which is a criticism of imperialism or Mm. a criticism of the way the treatment of Palestinians. Uh, I've got no love for Israel, but I certainly don't think that uh, Britain or British artists on their own terms or in terms of like the legitimization of a state have any leg to stand on because, (laughs) you know, you don't (laughs) want to go down Britain bashing, but let's not forget that we've had a... 
uh, a nice time of occupying and being imperial in other other places across the world. But it's also interesting in relation to where this argument is being had on cultural terms. Mm. So I do think there's an incredible amount of arrogance um, amongst the artists who are opposing this, mm. as if the idea that you, by making a, you know, a musical boycott in relation to Eurovision or any other thing, it, you know, if Peter Gabriel doesn't play in Israel, then it's going to really affect the Israeli government and the Israeli yeah. system and mm. the Palestinians are going to be cheering him on. Are you joking? King, but also in relation to, I, I was thinking back at previous times in which boycotts have caused controversy. One of my favourite albums, Graceland by Paul Simon in 1986, caused a huge amount of controversy because he went to South Africa, mm. um, broke with the uh, artists, including Peter Gabriel, who's doing this for a long time, um, who opposed the apartheid movement and were doing a cultural boycott. And Paul Simon's argument was, OK, I don't agree with apartheid. I'm not going to go and beg the ANC for permission to do this, but I want to go and celebrate South African artists. What you forget in all of this is certainly something like music is meant to be free from political mm. constraints. Yeah. You kind of penalise the people living within that area mm, with the pretense of hurting the state. Yeah, completely. And also on the kind of anti-Semitic point, you have to see the kind of consequence of this kind of posture and this kind of reflex to rage against anything from any kind of production, any kind of artists from Israel has been received some Israeli funds. I remember a couple of years ago at the Edinburgh Fringe, there were a couple of instances in which one um, Israeli theatre group called Incubator Theatre, as well mm. as an Israeli dance troupe, were protested um, outside of the venues in which they were performing. I interviewed um, Incubator Theatre people for Spikes at the time. And again, this argument that because they were in receipt of effectively is the Israeli equivalent of the Arts Council funding, yeah. that they should be raised against. And the point that they made to me was, if you make this your standard, then you're effectively saying no Israelis will be able to perform at the Edinburgh Fringe. Mm. Um, and that is the standard that we're increasingly doling out in all sorts of different contexts. And to people saying, of course, that BDS is not itself anti-Semitic, criticising Israel is not anti-Semitic. Of course, criticising Israel is not anti-Semitic. But if you create a situation in which effectively any Israeli Jew who comes to this country to try and perform or wants to perform in Eurovision is going to be protested, hounded, accused of being some sort of shill for the Israeli state and an apologist for its militarism, what sort of conclusion do you expect them to draw from that? You've been listening to the Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us a rating, a review, or even make a donation. We'll be back next week, but for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.